Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 31, Final Fantasy VII, episode 19, and back with me is Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Mr. West Chance. Hey, how's it going? It's going well, you know, uh, having a heavy heart, and you know, the game really does give you a, a one-two punch right after the death of Ares. You, you get to, you know, walk immediately into a cold and desolate area, and, uh, and then kind of walk around in a disoriented way. And then you, you go to this little icicle inn, which then also leads to a very disorienting, like snow, cold adventure where you, you see, you know, details about the birth of Ares right after her death. And so it's, it's really like you're experiencing a cold day in hell um, <laughs> uh, right, after, right at the beginning of Disc 2. And, um, and uh, it's like a splash of cold water in the face. From the game this yeah this is a connection that um in my game at least it's barrett it might be a party member or it might be him no matter who's in your party at the time but he says something when you come out of the cabin that's as far as i got um, when you come out of the cabin at the foot of the cliff he says that this place is like the opposite of midgar do you remember that it, it's like this is all pure nature and that he can suddenly see like why Shinra might have tried to create a place like Midgar, which is, you know, purely technological and, and seeking to control uh, natural forces. And, and then he's like, he like rails at himself immediately. He's like, I can't believe I'm saying this, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's an element of the disorienting that you're talking about. The, the, the purity and the, the cold and the snow. Also, in a weird way, I think of the many, many grammatical um, lapses in the game's text in the English translation. I don't know if they cleaned this up in later versions, like, but in my version, at least, the original like PlayStation has tons and tons of problems or at least weird um, things that seem like errors or typos or uh, just ver various kinds of grammatical issues start to crop up uh, especially here, and um, I wonder if that's, you know, a kind of a metaphorical way of looking at the, the disorientation of being in the snowy expanses and having the wind blow you and change the camera angles around and this and that. Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah, and more about what's disorienting is that you, you enter into this sort of uh, white area that's all covered uh, with snow and looks the same and then have to run further north because you're on the wrong side of the, the sort of mountains to get into one of your transportation devices even though you know like north is colder and ultimately you're going to have to go south again and so you're going the wrong direction in a way and you reach this place called the Icicle Inn which then sort of flips your your world upside down because you you watch these videos, and again, uh, you, you can see just how, how much a story or learning a piece of history can affect you and how you see things. But you, we get to see Professor Gast and his relationship with Ares's mother, Ifalna, and apparently Professor Gast is, is the father of Ares. And uh, there were some terrible things that happened there, but um, uh, there seems to be something disorienting in the uh, sort of changing or the, the trespassing upon uh, borders there um, and then uh, again Hojo comes and sort of uh, puts a stop to this Edenic 
um, but ultimately tragically doomed love affair. Um, and so, and yeah, like you said, in the last bit that's disorienting is the last part of getting through the snow after your snowboarding adventure, like what you can do in the golden saucer later <coughs> is, um, you have to put stakes in the ground heading straight and then you get blown so that you are essentially turned in 180 degrees and you have to hold your line going straight. Um, even though your entire perspective has changed. It's very like Dante at the bottom of hell, uh, which is also frozen going with Virgil up the waist of, uh, Satan, but then down it again as he shifts hemispheres and it can, they change a perspective from an infernal one to a purgatorial one. And it's, um, I, I feel like that's what's starting to manifest here. It's sort of like what Christmas is supposed to mean being the 25th of December after the 22nd, when uh, uh, 22nd is the lightest, or the 22nd is the darkest day of the year, the least amount of light, but the 25th is when you can notice that there is more light during the day, that hope is being restored, that maybe Cloud can get it back together even after this tremendous blow, which is Aries dying or... Uh, uh, so if there's some metaphorical interpretation to it, like because of his actions, she left him or his ideal had to change in life and thus how he reflected on himself or something. I don't know if she's a figure of self-delusion for him or something weird like that. Um, but yeah, sorry, Bless. A lot there. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, just to like go back to the, the image of the markers in the, in the snow, like I think we can kind of take them one by one um, a little bit here go, going back so like like you say when you come into the village there's the house of Dr. Gast and you discover this by inspecting the video equipment that's there and it still apparently still works um, and so there's these recordings on it um, the first I think is about the crisis right and then the other ones are about um, weapon, and then the uh, personal, like, to do with um, the the daughter, right? The the those two um, short ones, and then the last one is interrupted by Shinra, um, Hojo, and the soldiers coming to take um, Eris and Afalna, uh, and it sounds like to to kill Doctor Gast. Um, but the last two, there's no, or rather the the you don't see video of, of the infant daughter. Um, you, you're sort of just getting the text about her. Um, and, and in some way that's like very touching, uh, but it's also very it, confusing, I guess. <laughs> like it's hard to sort of make sense of, of how these things fit together. So, so the, the crisis um, is where Gast is talking to Ifalna and she's telling about the the story of um, essentially Meteo, right? Like impacting the planet, um, the wound that's there, and then the um, the way that the ancients tried to heal the wound. It, am I getting that straight? Yes, and that some of them did end up healing it to some extent, but the the planet is still healing, and that it has not fully healed for some reason because of the presence of Genova, which even though Genova is not mentioned by name in the crisis, 
And this is, I think, where that grammatical point about pronouns you were bringing up and whether that's an error or done on purpose becomes important because um, even though we know often uh, there are words that are misspelled in this translation and that's something that's widely known and disseminated about it. And, but um, Jenova is described as a he and him. Um, he comes and infects the cetera with a virus and then goes to the other tribes and infects them with a virus and was eventually put to sleep. But like sort of, um, I'm forgetting the name of the, the character or the evil character from Chrono Trigger, but can never, can never fully die, but just goes back yeah. to sleep. Um, Lavos. There's Lavos. Yes. That, that impacts. It's, it's very much a similar, and this is, I mean, to the point that it's almost cliche, right? This is in some way the bad guy that's in practically every RPG, right? It's this kind of numinous force which has manifestations and you're in this kind of Manichaean struggle. I mean, I mean that's like a real superficial way to just like gloss pretty much every RPG with all of the interesting shades and exceptions that then you get when you start to look at it more closely. Um, but yeah, and why they should have what we take to be Genova, um, the, the appearance of that being and as a, ki a kind of um, tempter and actually spreading like a virus among the ancients and, and so that they aren't able um, to, to complete the healing process, or at least it's gonna take a, a long, long time for the planet to heal now. Um, Ifana seems to be the last of the ancients, right? Uh, that much seems to be consistent with other parts of the story we've gotten so far. Um, all of that is, it's very strange. Uh, and the, the way that Genova is like misunderstood throughout the game, you know, like by Sephiroth thinking that that's, um, that she's an ancient or that, that she's his mother, um, that she like, has different forms. She's sort of protean every time you fight her, right? Um, the, the misunderstanding here or the confusion at least here about Genova's gender, the whole name Genova, right? Which refers pretty clearly to, to the name of God in the, uh, the burning bush or whatever, right? The, the Tetragrammaton. Um, it's, it's all really, really convoluted uh, and seems it seems like there's an error here, but but it could be part of it that we need to try to figure out why why suddenly Genova or what seems to be Genova is now male in this story. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, but what what do you think about that? Do you think it is just an error of the text, or that 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 speaks to the protean nature of Genova, and that what Genova is is like sort of like a sophistic argument from ancient Athens against Socrates from one of the platonic dialogues where it continues to shift. It's like sort of opinion or, or some sort of ideology that doesn't, that is not like the sort of truth, the logos, but it's something that continually changes in order to, and has a corrupting and corroding influence on those who embody and house it, right? It's called a virus. It's something that can be shared. And, some, and something that destroys whole communities. And I wonder to what extent that, that is when sort of like an evil or demonic or legion-like uh, sort of uh, ideology replaces the capacity to think and be aware 
of one's own surroundings and the sort of effect of one's behavior under the auspices of general principles and how that might actually affect the world around one. Um, and whether that is, it, to some extent, the, the commentary that is being made here by uh, uh, what, what destroy, you know, the blight from the sky or the crisis from the sky, the calamity from the sky that destroys the cetera and hurts the planet. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a really interesting way to, to look at it. And I think there's a lot to, to sort of see when you start to think about like, okay, let's take it as intentional, right? Let's not just say it's an error. I think that is the more interesting way to do it. And so if you do that, then, then why should this being appear as male in the ancient story and then as female in the contemporary or, or modern version of the story, right? So, mm -hmm. so, and this is kind of like what's going on, I think if you're making the parallel, I think you are to kind of t today's events. Well, so yeah, so why should this, this virus be a kind of male virus in the past, uh, maybe like a tyrannical force or, or something like that, right? Versus a, a female virus now, this, this very difficult to pin down this chaotic element to look at it in that kind of symbolic fashion. Um, and that seems interesting. And uh, it does seem like for whatever reason, Genova being female, uh, did have the effect on Sephiroth that, that she seems to have wanted to have, right? That he, you know, um, wants to possess and to um, protect her, you know, and, and sort of do her work, you know, um, that when he um, becomes disillusioned, he becomes more prone to call down Medio and, and do Genova's, you know, the, the work that she, he was was trying to do in the first place back in the ancient times. And it strikes me too that the ancients are pretty consistently um, uh, feminized, right? They, they're like a sort of feminine force um, from, from the, uh, the healing aspect of it, the, um, the, all the ways in which Eris is a kind of ideal feminine uh, figure. So, so then the, the, the counterpart to that, um, Genova in that, in that ancient story should be male, um, does seem sort of to fit uh, sort of symbolically then too. And uh, when, when Dr. Gast um, is talking to Ifalna, he's, he's also sort of like protective, you know, but he does sort of also, as insof insofar as he's trying to protect her, he does cut off maybe more of the story that she could have been able to tell if he allowed her to sort of push through the, the discomfort of telling the story. Um, and so in that way, the, the dynamic there of the, the masculine, like scientific seeker um, and, and the, the feminine ancient, you know, with the wisdom there that she possesses, um, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. And then to have, to have Eris herself be the product of those two um, sort of, yeah, gives a new, new angle onto her story and her role in the story. Yeah, and the fact that she's just died. And what's so interesting is that, you know, for those listeners who listen to our night school podcast and have sort of seen what started to be, see what was going on in the 19th century American poetic mind, um, 
there was a sort of shift from sort of religious language to scientific language, indicating sort of shift in perspective from sort of a mythological way of seeing the world based on sort of Christian mythology and theology to, um, to sort of scientific um, rationalism and empiricism. And so what's, what's interesting here is that 100 years later, Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, which we recently analyzed, 1892, uh, was released then, 1892, and uh, this is released 1997. And what we kind of see here is a scientist sort of falling back to those ancient roots, um, uh, studying in ancient with lore from the ancient past and being sort of lured over to it from his professional obligations at Shinra. So pulled from the sort of the professional scientific world towards um, producing with this ancient a child who I think you are, you are noting is the, thus the product of sort of contemporary science and ancient mythology, those two sort of ways of being. And the fact that that just died what does that mean uh, exactly if, if we're along the right lines in interpreting that union as an unio mystica, as the, the unions and the alchemists would say, uh, between two opposites in order to produce something new, like two perspectives. Now we see that, like we've been talking about the whole time, a birth of sort of an Eastern, Western, and old and new, or old, ancient and contemporary, or technology and magical sort of way of looking at things. They knew, it seems like you're saying, and or I'm interpreting what you're saying as uh, Aries embodying the new sort of, the perspective of the age that mixes technology and magic in the Final Fantasy world, but for us, science and sort of mythology or religion or the, the way of seeing the world as it is through instruments made to interact with the world and the way of seeing the world as a place of meaning. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. And so, so there's sort of two approaches to that then, right? So um, Shinra's approach is to try to, you know, control and sort of go the full um, scientific route or, or sort of like master and use this, this um, great potential. And then there's the other approach, which is Cloud and Barrett and the rest of the parties, and by extension, you, the player, right? You, you just sort of admire, um, want to know this person, um, perhaps fall in love with, right? If you're one of the fanboys, you go that whole, like, that's also an extreme um, that you can fall into, I think. Um, but, but what we're trying to do as far as possible is to see the bigger picture here and, like, you know, see both of those extremes and find a third way, which is, you know, being conscious of, of as much of that as possible and, and interpreting sort of how to um, apply and learn from and, um, and to, to do a better job uh, in, in our own um, engagement with nature and with, with science, um, all, all of that sort of stuff and interpersonal relationships like there's there's just a lot at stake here when when you start to really look at it and uh i i think that the the player's sympathies are clearly not with shinra right but we don't want to totally belittle the scientific approach because after all dr gast himself is is eris's father right and so there is like a benign or benevolent aspect of that which is really really important and and you can talk about it in lots of different ways but but a good one might be, yeah, to use 
sort of the the, the idea of the logos um, as as a, a, a living intellect or something like that. Um, well, the, yeah. yeah. So, and what's so interesting about that is just, again, to throw out sort of the Jungian archetypal interpretation is that Dr. Gass, insofar as, it, insofar as he represents the positive image of the father, and so the Jungians say that there are three archetypes that uh, form the basis of our consciousness. The, the male father, which is, has the negative and the positive aspect, and Eric Neumann says this too. You know this because you analyzed that book and wrote a good piece on it. Uh, there's the, also the mother and the positive and the negative mother and the child which also subdivides into the hero and the adversary. But what's interesting here is that we have the positive father, Gast, like um, Osiris, die and go into the underworld. We have also the positive mother, the sort of nature mother, Ifalna, die and go into the underworld. And we have even the child, who is here female, which is interesting and different, Ares go into the underworld, which means in terms of sort of narrative economy and also in terms of sort of psychological economy, that each one of those roles now seeks to be embodied in the world in a real way again. So someone has to go down to the underworld. That means acquire sort of the skill necessary to now embody in the world, out in the world of light and manifest those skills, right? So like in order to manifest the skills of being a welder, you have to gain the skills of the dead. That means gain the skills of welders throughout all time and the time of now in order to be relevant and then embody those skills in the world. Um, and so it, every, every role seeks to be uh, filled now. It's like, who is going to be the uh, sort of positive mother? Who is going to be the positive father? Which, which of the characters in your party are going to step up and um, uh, produce those pieces in the narrative? It, it does seem like you're sort of the hero, but um, it's, it's like it's like half the game is now covered in shadow. Yeah, that's that's really illuminating and the way that this seems to fill in some of that background um and the way that it's through the voice of Eris's mother here is is really really interesting. Her character um is one that we've met and sort of glanced at back in Midgar and from stories that Eris, the, the little bit that Eris told about her. Um, but we do see her here for the first time and hear her. Um, and what she's talking about, right, is very, is really traumatic. You know, it's this stuff that she is not um, very happy to have to, to tell. And Dr. Gast, because he loves her, is, you know, sad and sort of pities her and doesn't want to force her to tell too much. But I think also, in terms of the narrative, that, that makes it that much more intriguing, right? Like, we get only a little bit here. We get a little bit about the crisis. We get a little bit about weapon also. And its role is going to become more important um, as we proceed in this, like, second half or so of, of the game. Um, the idea that the planet has this capacity to not only heal itself, but also to, to defend itself against the virus, right? Um, which has damaged it, which is still um, threatening it, that that aspect of the game uh, is, is very <laughs> relevant and interesting here. Um, but it's just like lightly sort of uh, adumbrated at, at this point, like pointed towards. Um, and, then, and then you get those, those brief discussions about Eris. There, there was a confusion in, this, in the one about Eris too, about her name. Um, 
which again, I wasn't sure what to make of. It sounded like this was supposed to be after Eris is born, but um, something Dr. Gass says is like, if it's a girl, I want to name her Eris or whatever you know name you gave that character. So I was a little confused about that. Again, like why are they, why are they not sure whether she's a girl yet if she's already been born? And why, I guess, haven't they uh, clarified that um, discrepancy in the game? Again, I could be misreading something or just not, not getting what's going on here. But did, because, did you notice Because that? the name of that segment is 10 Days After Birth, right? Yeah, right. I thought so. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, I wonder if that, again, was an error or or intentional, something about ancients that they don't form until some moment then, or some other sort of commentary. Hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm sure there's like thousands of pages of discussion of this on some forum somewhere. So anyway, but I just, I, I guess it just is interesting to me that if it is an error, it's again in that same general semantic field of like confusion about gender <laughs> and like about names um, as the result or, or sort of together with that. Um, so I just, that's just a marker in the snow for now, I guess. But, um, and you know, it'd then, be interesting. You know, maybe we could get a linguist on here and uh, some, or somebody who teaches languages and they could tell us a little bit about um, learning and translating pronouns into other languages and whether that's a fundamental aspect or sort of an aspect that comes late or something that's very difficult to learn. Because we do know that there were translation issues here, and it would be interesting to see whether that was sort of systemic or endemic to the learning of languages and what that sort of says about the, uh, the, uh, what we are expressing when we express ourselves in those ways. And, so, or, and also some potential differences between Japanese and English and how they, they uh, express pronouns that might lead to you know, easy translation errors or transcribing errors between the, the languages. Um, yeah. Well, so I also wanted to ask or, or, or just note one interesting thing to those, of, uh, to those of our listeners who were listening into our last conversation with Dr. Matt Roos, which um, one thing that made it easier to play through this game, and I think is sort of one of the sort of hacks or sort of uh, life skills that a game teaches, the meta skills that come out from the game that don't simply make you better at the game, but make you better at strategizing throughout life, is um, that um, because I knew that the game would only be so hard in order to stimulate me to continue to move forward based on my, my reward-seeking behavior, re uh, reward being getting the next narrative points and new like sort of items, I knew that the the snow that I had to get through. And that was sort of a long point after the icicle in and um, uh, took some time of being disoriented and having to keep from being frustrated while having random battles. I knew that it would only be so hard that my experience would be bounded in some way. And that actually helped me to find my experience so that I, I never got frustrated or irritated during that time and knew that I would get through it eventually if I just stuck with the way to go through it. And I wonder if that's some sort of commentary on how to get through the labyrinth and towards the Minotaur, or whether that is itself the Minotaur, and whether that is something the game is trying to teach us. And then later, if we can get to it, I'd like to say that I think I understand, uh, based on that conversation now, and that piece that was on, 
uh, it was it was some form called something that it's not game again but it was a play on game something like that um and um uh something about how uh an rpg itself uses sort of neuro neuroscience to um to to get you to develop in a ma like sort of an optimal way um and to show you how you get better at things in general yeah yeah definitely the i mean there's something interesting going on here where in order to get to the next part of the game um it's a little bit like nibelheim actually where to get to the mountains of nibelheim you got to go through the town of nibelheim first right and this is um and in like the you know the city of the ancients to get to the, even this the snow fields and stuff up north you've got to go through the city of the ancients um there's something here where you you pass through um some some dialogue and stuff in town and of all the things that you need in order to proceed at this stage you need the kids snowboard first of all so like this toy essentially um is the the key item that you've got to have to go forward and it's helpful but i don't know if it's required that you also grab the map off the wall of the um the missing explorer guy uh so he's been gone for like 20 years or something, right? Like climbing this cliff somewhere off the side of the glacier. And you can grab the map off his wall so that you, um, like up till now you've just had this world map. Like you didn't ever really get it. You just always have it. But now there's this, this stage in the game where you're exploring and you, you have a, a separate special little map that's going to help you stay or, uh, oriented in that, in that, uh, that strange place. And so, I found it kind of interesting that those two key items like appear so close together here, right? The toy, the snowboard, the extreme sport, you know, thing. And then also the, uh, the explorer's map. Um, I, I do, I, I do like the point you make too about the game itself sort of um, showing you and teaching you way, ways to um, engage and um, see certain kinds of reward and like be, be led forward by them to, uh, to make greater progress. Um, but I just wanted to throw those two things in there and see if you had thoughts about those as well before we go on to that. Yeah, well, I like it for two reasons. The first reason is that what's going to get you through this time of sort of uh, frozen hell chaos and moving you forward again is the use of the logos. And so when you have a map, you have to interpret the map and you have to figure out how it applies to reality and then alter it or alter your path based on it. And it is a reliable map. Also, what's gonna get you through this terrible time seems to be play. I mean, this kid was injured by it, but ultimately play is such a strong motivator that it is worth getting injured for, right? People's worst injuries come when they're playing sports, generally speaking, right? Like you tear your ACL playing soccer or ultimate Frisbee or you know, in a jujitsu competition. Or, you know, you're always getting hurt when you're pursuing, again, like sort of the rush of victory or in competition, uh, something like that. Uh, some sort of stimulating reward, some incentive reward, right? Uh, uh, and winning in competition is like the ultimate uh, hit of dopamine because your map is right and how you've been training is right and sort of your vision of future, the, view, the future and what you've predicted is right. And so, you know, you're going to need to use this 
this board to go down. And, and in fact, sort of at an inappropriate time when you've been getting all this heavy information, you have to play a mini game. And a mini game that's like pretty tough, like technically speaking, but was totally in line with the sort of the sorts of like wave runner and downhill like snowboarding games that were that were on the Sony PlayStation at that time. Um, and so I do to some extent feel like it's commentary on having to use your mind in order to get out of there, but also to maintain your capacity to play. And that yeah. you should never downplay just how powerful your motivation to go to places, to watch plays, and to watch people put on uh, performances of any kind, because that is all play circuitry too. Like, uh, you know, you're using your play circuitry to watch a movie or a stage production or a baseball game. Um, and that, yeah, that's just, and that's part of what you're doing as a game player outside of the mini game yourself you as the player you are giving your time that you could be like suffering or doing something else to this game where uh you're now playing and that that is you know potentially a valuable thing to be doing with your time yeah absolutely like there's little funny things in the town like the um there's people there from costa del sol and they're dressed like they're still in the beach, you know, and they're yeah. sitting around and they're like, oh, we came all this way to snowboard and the, the hills closed. Oh, lame. And so you're like, oh, whoa, there's there's like people who are just going about their daily lives and like having vacations and stuff while we're busy, like, you know, mourning our friend and trying to save the world. <laughs> and so it just throws things in a yeah, there's like some humor there and, and just some perspective on stuff. And then there's, of course, the little like conflict with Elena and the soldiers, like she tries to punch you and you move out of the way and she rolls down the hill. And then suddenly you're like allowed to proceed as well. You gotta go get the snowboard first. But, but then there's the kids outside of one of the buildings that are building a snowman. And they're like real pumped about that. And so as you're going down the hill, oh, and there's a little girl there who's sledding as well. And so as you go down the hill, what you have to dodge is mostly snowmen. There's like these weird little um, mog shaped snowmen too as you get further and you want to try to collect balloons um, so there's just all these like little yeah there's the weird little touches of humor and just like the game sort of poking fun at itself you know the, the mogs or moogles they're another like the chocobo like a, a final fantasy thing you know so it's to make them like giant snowmen that you run into is is just a, a way in which the game sort of pokes gentle fun at itself and, and at the player by extension right if you're getting things to taking things too seriously with you know Eris's death and blah 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 uh Dr. Gast yeah so it's just like there's that whole yeah that whole side of of fun but with all that said there's also the side of the map right and and the exploration and and what you're describing about the the kind of little me mechanisms of reward that the game has for you um and if you keep exploring that it does help you out because you'll eventually you'll 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 faint you're like it's too it's too cold and then you wake up in the cabin where you've been trying to get to the whole time so like no matter what you do as long as you're doing something the game will help you out seems to be the message there yeah and i see and i see in that also sort of the the tragic and the comic ways of perceiving life um because um the game is sort of suggesting to you that 
the little problems that each person is engaging in are the problems of their lives. So you're like obviously trying to deal with like Sephiroth and Meteor coming down and thinking that's the most important thing in the world. But then there are people who just want to like snowboard and there's a girl who just wants to sled down the hill and there's a guy who's keeping people from doing this sort of thing. The theater of their consciousness is occupied with problems of their moment just like you are. And so I agree that it's also sort of poking fun at sort of your perspective as the player thinking and as a conscious human that perhaps you like sort of the Blade Runner characters from the second movie think you're like sort of the Jesus figure, you know, you're the one who's on the hero's journey and it's only you and everything you're doing is the most important thing in the world. And oh my gosh, even Ares just died. And you know, how can people just be sitting around doing nothing and just doing all the mundane things? It's like, no, everybody's on the hero's journey to some extent. I mean, you even get that from the Turks who you see, I, I think multiple times on breaks, right? Like, even to the extent that Elena will not punch you in the face when she's on a break, even though she hates you for killing her boss, even though that's not what happened, probably, uh, unless Sephiroth is a part of you, as perhaps he is, and you did kill him and Ares. I don't know. Well, I, that's something, you know, I think, I don't know to what extent that has any support. But again, it's like, so I think in, you covered this to some extent in the Earthbound uh series just that going through your mundane problems during the course of the day can is the same thing as walking the path of the hero so even though you are actually like walking a heroic path and that you are a video game heroes uh sort of avatar or or the video game hero is the avatar for you and your action here going through in real life any of these particular sort of endeavors would also help to build you up and build up your experience just sort of like how going through these random encounters when you're going through the snow builds up your experience, right? And there's that reward element too. Like you go through these annoying random encounters. One way to look at them is just like pointless suffering. The other way is you get money to get new goods and you build your materia and your limit breaks and you level up and get stronger as well. So you are actually rewarded for going through the annoyance and going through these small uh seemingly like pointless if you just look at them one-on-one -on -one situations and that that too might model how you should look at life because again you'll see exponential growth in your strength like i can do like five to eight hundred damage regularly with most of my characters right now but eventually it will be i can do nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine in multiple times right um and so i wonder to what extent that is supposed to model like sort of your own growth in a skill endeavor in the real world as well and why you go through and have to be humble through the small griping instances because you gain experience and also skill at dealing with problems regardless of how small they appear to you in in the moment that they will lead to your ability to deal with big dragons in the same way in this game you deal with small annoying random encounters and then you know big dragons <laughs> i like that a lot and there's something really interesting there um, when you sort of look at it on those two levels of, of within the game and then outside of the game. Because, yeah, you can, you can grow incrementally and you can grow exponentially even within the game. And um, you can see that in a, in a pretty short time span, actually, right, With, within hours uh, of gameplay. Then you step back and hopefully you do this shortly not over the course of lots and lots of hours, but you, you know, you stop playing every so often and then you're in the real world 
you know, the everyday world, and you're doing all the things that you'd normally do, and hopefully you're seeing certain kinds of benefits um, from from playing the game, just like you get from doing any kind of of artistic or creative activity, just like you get from you know learning from hanging out and playing with your friends or any kind of play really, or, um, or, or whatever it might be. You see those benefits, you see them incremental, you see them perhaps exponential also. Um, one really dynamic part of that too is, is technological growth. Like we're seeing right now and have been seeing for a long time, but, but especially right now, it seems like this kind of explosion of, of technological advancement in terms of artificial intelligence uh, to the point where like the amounts of data and, and information or whatever are are so much greater than they were even a, a generation ago right and and to compare a generation ago to the generation before that you, you see again this kind of humongous exponential change and and if we sort of just project that forward a little bit you know potentially probably likely in our lifetimes, we'll see some really, really dramatic changes, um, which have incredible, you know, possibilities within them. And and that that possibility also is like mirrored in in us, or like in the people who are alive right now and who are going to be in the next few generations. So so I think that this like conversation about how the game, which is a, a interesting manifestation of technology, art, play, like all kind of wrapped together, how that all sort of mirrors the changes going on um, in people's consciousness, in the kinds of things that people are doing uh, with their time and, and in the world, the real world, you know, but also the virtual world, all of that. I mean, I think it's just like such an important place to, to sort of focus our attention and, and really think about. And if it takes, you know, some sort of silly things like potentially to, to make us look at them, that's, I think that much more interesting, right? Uh, this little, this popular culture manifestation, like it's got, it's got all of that in there. Um, well, it's, it's got. Yeah. I, I was just going to say this part is also where you find, I think the first um, holy type weapon, like um, the elemental Holy uh, summon Alexander, and this is a really interesting thing. There's a pun there, right? Uh, I guess cosmic pun on your name, right? That this um, this summon is, I guess, it's named after Alexander the Great. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, you share the name with it. Uh, it's 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 a holy type uh, summon attack. It's like it's really really powerful. Um, and it's really like awesome when you when you first find it. It is a kind of side quest as well. Like it's well off the beaten path, um, and you know you just lost Eris, who was doing some kind of holy activity or sort of personifying that holy or sac sacred thing in the game. Um, and so suddenly, you know, in in some form, she's back with you, right, through the stories that you see. Um, through this materia, uh, it, it starts to look like, you know, she, um, if, if Sephiroth is a part of you, which might be the case, then she too is, is now a part of you. Yeah, and I, it's just interesting, I just wanted to backtrack 
a little to the sort of relationship between the game and reality too, because just I feel like you hit on a big issue and part of what we're sort of struggling with here is just the rapid pace of technological growth and how it, it's sort of evolutionary pace outstrips the pace of even ev evolution because it doesn't, it, you know, the pace of technology is not restricted to the pace of biological growth. And so patterns can develop at an even faster rate. And that that is affecting, obviously, how we live in the world and behave in the world yeah, in a behavioral level, right? And that's how we perceive the world because we're behaving very differently from how we ever have because of how we interact with technology and that it moves even so fast that we are just now trying to understand 21 years after the release of this game what it meant, right? But that something just at a basic behavioral level, I think it's trying to teach us is how to interact with technology uh, uh, within the scope of a good day and that it is not suggesting to us that we should let it absorb us uh, entirely and that I'd, I'd actually very, be very interested in having a mental health professional here or one in training have some comments on that because it's it's almost as if technology has shown itself as sort of a new god like a dionysian god that has taken sacrifices from our generation which are sort of the sort of mentalities of some people who have like i think you mentioned when we were talking about sephiroth and who i think you had a, a some derision for who have sort of like given up on sort of traditional figures of evil and good or more developed or sophisticated ones and sort of worship Sephiroth, right? Or like have an ideology that is based on Sephiroth and that there are people who have sort of fetishized these games and sort of have made the narrative of them, their lives imitating these sorts of characters, just not in action or in like terms of representing the same principles of them, but like just trying to appear in the same way as they do and that those people seem not to have gotten the true message of the game because they're just taking the most superficial aspects of the game and not the true uh, essential lessons from the game. Uh, so I think there are a couple of things there that I was trying to say. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, that's a big pitfall, I think, to be sort of captivated by certain surface elements of the game and, and maybe like, getting drawn into uh, the way that those things make you feel or whatever. Um, again, I think maybe the antidote to that is like seeing it within a, a bigger historical and artistic kind of perspective and probably technological too, but I, I'm much less um, sort of versed in, in that side of things. Like I don't, I wish I knew more about game programming and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, the, the idea to have, um, sort of like this this cabin um, as a way, a way station that you get to. Uh, and as you're getting there, there's all these other little tents and like uh, makeshift shelters and stuff that are abandoned. Um, that, that strikes me as kind of an image for uh, a, a well-adjusted playing of the game, right? Is, is uh, the guy in his cabin who's, um, you know, helping other travelers, like, get through the snowfield, right, um, versus all those, those way stations, those, those sort of incomplete, uh, those unfinished or um, arrested reads or interpretations of the game, um, which, which are stuck out in the cold, you know, and as you go along, you can find good stuff there, like, you find treasures there, um, but you don't find living people, and, and you find this, um, 
this kind of demon in one of the caves and when you defeat it you get the the summon spell um but you again that's not like that's not a good place to stay you, you go through that you pass through it and then you get to kind of the next stage on your your journey uh yeah, seems to and, be the, the idea there and what what it does and what does it is more resilience and more attention that you have to pay right like you're eventually past this cabin going to have to you know endure massive suffering that other people do not get through and you're going to have to shiver yourself and pay a lot of attention and deal with more like actual annoying pain even as a game player right you're going to have to pay attention to things you don't usually pay attention to and you're also going to have to use your mind more it's like it is going to be a time of more cross-bearing of more suffering of more um activity less you know sort of pleasant leisure like it's as if part of the web has been broken and you are sort of like an arachne like spider and you have to be rebuilding that web and sort of that's how one overcomes the trauma of losing somebody who is a big part of one's life like you have to rebuild all those action patterns and ways of perceiving the world like you have to and and in fact you're going to have to go down to the underworld and build a new perspective and in fact let somebody um if it was somebody you loved and depending on how old you are um and how much you want family you know and to be with somebody let somebody embody that 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 sort of haunting now underworld based archetype of you know the partner uh whichever gender it happens to be or sex and um so so yeah right on well so that gives us i, th I think that covers pretty much everything i was I was hoping we'd get to talk about that's about as far as I got. Um, I haven't started shivering yet, but I know, yeah, I know that's the next step uh, and climbing that, that cliff. So. Well, and I think that's just so important because it's like people, when they go through tough times and I think this is part of what the game is really, really, really saying right now. And um, is that you got to be tougher than usual. Just sort of like, that's sort of like what you learned if you were in like Boy Scouts or some organization where you went out, and like stayed in a tent in the woods during those weekends. It's like, why'd you do that? Well, it's to make you tough and to understand sort of how great we usually have it in, if you live in a city, but also just to, to let you know, you know, what it is that you can do and what you have to do at times and be able to do. And so like, you know, I feel like that would give someone hope. It's like, yes, it is tough like recognize how tough the situation is, recognize how tall the mountain is. And I feel like that gives you the hope that you can actually like rebuild your life by ascending that mountain, by rebuilding those habits. That itself can occupy your attention so greatly and reflecting on doing that, that you rebuild your life through the rebuild, literally through the rebuilding process. And that that always exists for you to do in a time of tremendous suffering or after a tremendous failure or after, you know, an earth shattering event in your life, like a loved one dies or you don't get into medical school or something like, you know, something that totally changes how you look at the future, the, uh, in the immediate present. And that that's um, what's just happened with our characters. Right on. Yeah. They are again. Yeah. About to go up they're uh that cliff they're about to uh, yeah at some point here i forget exactly when descend into the cave um and uh 
yeah, I, how, how far should we try to get to for next time here? Um, I'm not sure. This is a part of the game that I don't have the strongest memory of, and maybe that's sort of the power of Genova come over it. But I also think it's interesting that uh, this is a time of the game uh, what's talked about is wounds that never heal. And that that, to some extent, might psychologically be uh, something people are afraid of or that what the characters are afraid of for sort of cloud and, or, and also something that might cause like sort of the Peter Pan syndrome or the Puer Eternus syndrome as the unions would call it, uh, that some part of the negative or sirenic effect of this game, if you couldn't get past that would be that you, uh, you, you become afraid to care about things in the world because you see that they can be taken away or you see the temporal, the temporality of them. And so you refuse to engage with that and move forward. Sort of like this character in the cabin who like fails and then never moves forward, stays there. Like that is the guy who's been missing for 20 years, right? The guy who tends to you in right, the cabin. Right. Why did he just build that cabin and stay there? Why didn't he return? Why didn't he move on? And that is, I would say also the psychological situation of some people and how this game affected them. That perhaps that is part of what a game or good story, or and what the Odyssey says about a game or good story, that it can have the effect of a siren if you don't like say stop or your ears simply from the pleasant effect, and also but also see it for what it is, for the good and the bad that it offers as well. Right on. Yeah, no, he's a that's an interesting character. So maybe that'd be a good place to start at least for next time. And we'll see. I guess we'll see how far we get. Um, For sure. But yeah. yeah. Cool. Awesome. I, this is a real interesting uh, discussion. I, I was really confused by some of this stuff. So this has been very helpful uh, talking it through. Yeah, as usual. You know, it's a, I think that, and I think that's the difference between coming, coming to these uh, conver- conversations, A, unprepared, we're never that, uh, but B, with like an, you know, an ax to grind. Like usually I think we're just trying to make sense of what we just saw and it's usually pretty strange and it's usually once we think it through, usually what we've seen is pretty profound and interesting. And so that, you know, there's some comment on, you know, how perhaps most of what we see, if we like Socrates uh, master could see the hundred parts of the wagon rather than just four, we saw how complex everything around us always was, then we would be a little bit more amazed at all times. And maybe that is what the beginning of wisdom is and what the fear of God actually is. I wonder. Hmm. All right. Right on. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. you Go. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. (laughs) Okay.